Hello, and welcome to the Healthcare Law Today podcast presented by Foley and Lardner. Each month, we'll bring you a different thought leader to discuss current legal trends in the healthcare industry. I'm your host, Judy Waltz, partner and chair of Foley's healthcare industry team. It's a pleasure to have you joining us today. Before we begin our show, I want to remind you to subscribe to Healthcare Law Today, either on iTunes or your preferred podcast app. Please visit our website at healthcarelawtoday.com. For today's show, I'd like to introduce my colleague, Roger Strode, to kick off Healthcare Private Equity Investing, Trends and Forecasts for the New Year. Take it away, Roger. Thank you very much, Judy, for that introduction. Uh, for all of you out there, my name's Roger Strode. I'm a uh, partner in the National Healthcare Practice of Foley and Lardner, and I work out of our Chicago office. Over the course of my career, I counsel buyers and sellers of healthcare businesses, including investors in and sellers of things like physician practices, ambulatory surgery center. I do work in physical therapy, hospital M&A, imaging centers and the like. And I hesitate to say this, but I've been in practice approximately 30 years. It's actually more than 30 years, but I'm sticking with 30. The focus of today's podcast is expected trends in healthcare private equity investing over the next 12 months. I know that for those of you listening out there that are engaged in some aspect of the space, you're fully aware of the torrid pace at which these investments have taken place. If you look at 2018 statistics alone, there were almost 800 transactions with about $100 billion in value on those transactions. With all this investing, there are also questions that have begun to arise around private equity investing in healthcare. Um, you know, one of the questions is whether or not this pace of investment and the returns expected by investors are good for patient care. Those kinds of questions have arisen. Are these investments causing increases in costs? Um, and are all these deals going to be successful? And what happens if these deals fail? And furthermore, members of Congress are beginning to probe investors looking at issues like surprise billing as an example. Today's discussion is going to center on provider-focused investing in the physician and behavioral health spaces, both of which have been really very hot. We've seen an awful lot of this uh, at Foley and Lardner, and I know those of you listening out there have probably seen an awful lot of it as well. In connection with this discussion today, I'm delighted to be joined by two guys who are good friends of mine and with whom I've had the pleasure to work over the past decade in all manner of transactions. My first guest is John Riddle. John's managing director of Brown Gibbons Lang and is charged with running BGL's health and life sciences business. And John's a graduate of the University of Chicago. My second guest is my friend Dan Davidson, based in Atlanta. He's managing director at Coker Capital. Uh, Coker most recently became a division of Fifth Third Bank. Dan is a proud Clemson Tiger. And Dan, I'm sorry uh, about the fate of your boys this year. Both John and Dan have deep experience in the purchase and sale of a wide variety of healthcare businesses. As I mentioned, my team and I have worked alongside of both BGL and Coker numerous times, and I'm continually impressed with the knowledge uh, of each of these guys, their professionalism and their client services. So it's a real pleasure to have each of them here today. Gentlemen, welcome to Healthcare Law Today. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Before we start, I'm going to throw it to each one of you, both John and Dan, and can you give us a little introduction to your backgrounds and a little bit on John on the BGL business and then Dan on the Coker business? So John, uh, take it away. Thanks, Roger. Brown Gibbons Lang is an investment bank based in Chicago. Uh, we are one of the larger middle market advisory firms in the U.S. 
BGL covers a number of industries, including uh, we have a significant team dedicated to the healthcare and life sciences industry. Uh, within healthcare, among the sectors we are active in, we have a team that specializes, as Roger indicated, in, in advising physician practices and the many related ambulatory services that, that doctors are involved in. For my part, I have been an investment banker now for better than 30 years and have worked across the healthcare landscape, advising providers, diagnostic and device companies, many life science companies, and a wide variety of healthcare IT and outsourcing businesses. Thanks, John. Uh, Dan, if you could uh, spend a couple of minutes and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Coca Capital. Great. Thanks so much for having me on today, Roger. And further to your comment, Coker Capital Advisors was founded in 2009, and we formally partnered with Fifth Third Securities in February of 2018. So that's just two years ago now. Uh, our firm is, is also an investment bank, and we have a dedicated team of 25 experienced professionals that are focused exclusively on providing advisory services to healthcare clients, primarily in the services industry. We have six partners that have over a hundred years of combined experience and have executed over 250 deals with an aggregate value in excess of 65 billion. Looking forward to sharing some of the insights today that we've learned over the years. In terms of my background, yes, I am a, a Clemson Tiger and I'm also not as old as you gentlemen because I only have 25 years of, of investment banking experience. All of that focused on the healthcare industry. Thank you, gentlemen. They're very impressive. And as I said before, we at Foley and Lardner have had the opportunity to work with both of John and his team and Dan and his team, and, and we greatly enjoy it. Uh, gentlemen, I'd like to jump into the a few questions for each one of you today. And John, given the amount of work that you and BGL do in the physician practice recapitalization space, can you give us about five minutes on what you expect to see in this space over the next year? Um, and maybe you can focus on acquisitions possibly some restructurings if we've seen some deals that haven't done well. I think the audience out there would really like to hear what you have to say in this. Yeah, happy to, Roger. And, you know, the way we think about this sector, it's a bit of a tale of two or three or four cities and really dependent upon the, the particular physician specialty or, or model. You know, the multi-site retail specialties where there's been just a ton of heat and activity and uh, we, we view is really just continuing to consolidate at a steady pace across uh, all the many sectors like dental and, and derm, ophthalmology, uh, that, that have been uh, in consolidation for uh, a number of years. Interestingly, we, we are starting to see activity and increasing activity in the complex disease state specialties such as orthopedics and gastro. And, these are, uh, there's definitely great promise there, uh, but they're very different businesses than the, than the retail multi-site uh, specialties in that they tend to be, you know, more localized, dense delivery systems and much more complex, a bit of a managed care and payer overlay to, to those specialties. Uh, within the uh, a third group, the facility-based specialties, such, such as anesthesia and emergency department management, we're seeing a, a fairly demonstrated pullback from consolidation or 
the frenetic uh, consolidation pace that we see in the past five years as the large consolidators themselves start to regroup. Uh, so we expect to see that uh, sector generally uh, probably cool down here for a year or two. Trend-wise, we see the consolidators in each specialty, uh, along with the investors and lenders, getting more disciplined, frankly, in the way that they value a target practice, uh, particularly related to giving credit uh, to certain pro forma adjustments to revenues and earnings that they've been more than willing to uh, provide full credit for and thus provide really fulsome valuations in the past. Three years ago, investors were extremely aggressive. Today, that initial exuberance has really settled down into more of a, a rational approach to valuation and, and transactions. You know, relative to the, the acquisition activity with the larger consolidators, several of the original platforms within the retail specialties are going to be sold this year in 2020 by their private equity investor. Perfect example of this is a recent transaction announced by Enhanced Equity on their dermatology platform, West Dermatology, which is one of the larger derm groups. It was recently sold from Enhanced to, uh, to Sun Capital, and we expect to see a number of groups follow suit in 2020. Uh, at some point, we'll see the, the individual consolidators themselves uh, begin to merge within these specialties, although I think we're, we're probably a few years away from seeing that happen in any meaningful way. Roger, you asked a question around uh, you know, restructuring and places where things haven't gone so well. Uh, we certainly can get after that, but the good news is that, except for the rare exception, the investment activity within the physician practice landscape has been very successful, frankly. Uh, it's the rare exception where companies haven't performed uh, or where investment returns for the equity investors haven't met expectations. So it continues to hold the, the attention of the broad investor market, and, and we don't see that uh, slowing down for the, the next several years, for sure. John, in terms of um, one of the, uh, the more complex disease states uh, that you mentioned, both gastroenterology and orthopedics, I know we've seen an awful lot of interest, especially in orthopedics. Can you tell me why or tell us why those deals are going to be tougher or more complex to get done? Obviously, you've got very complex practices. I guess, you know, what I'm seeing is, again, an awful lot of interest, but not as many deals getting done. And is that just the nature of the beast here with these types of practices? Yeah, I think it's a couple things, Roger. First of all, they're they're very different, as I said, than the, than the retail specialties, which the practice of dermatology, for example, functions not too dissimilarly from any other retail business in America. They have a storefront, they have a, a footprint, a standardized footprint, they have a, a model of delivering care, and each clinical location is essentially in, in successful practices very, very close in the way they operate and deliver care as the, uh, the other one that's down the street or around the corner or in a, in a town one stop over. So it's very much about standardization and, and then just replicating the unit of, of operations. And so, you know, the, the operational complexity there is not, is not that great. Uh, within orthopedics, for example, it's, it's multi-specialty. It's uh, within orthopedics. It's uh, 
site of service could be in the hospital, it could be at the ambulatory surgery center, it could be in the clinic. There are a lot of different disciplines that are going into delivering care uh, to say a joint surgery, including physical therapy and, and durable medical equipment, uh, perhaps drugs. Uh, they're getting into even behavioral and, and dietary. Another big difference is the dermatologist generally doesn't compete with a local healthcare system because they don't drive any volume into a hospital, whereas orthopedic group is in direct competition with the local health systems and or they could uh, be collaborating with them. So they're, they're just, it's very, very complex. The other thing I would say in terms of volume, if you look at each one of these retail specialties, a lot of the consolidation activity was catalyzed by uh, some kind of reimbursement cut in dermatology they had a huge cut to the lab and, and a huge cut to uh, one of their core surgical procedures. And you have these very profitable uh, small practices that get a bit nervous, decide maybe, maybe I should look for a, a big brother to, to align with rather than continue to, to retain independence. Whereas orthopedics really hasn't suffered that kind of a, a hit to, to revenues yet. I guarantee you when that happens and it will happen in our view, that will probably push physician owners to start to get more aggressive, more, more receptive to, uh, to consolidation. Thanks, John. Dan, I'd like to switch gears here for a minute and talk to you specifically uh, about an area that Coker in general, and I know you personally have um, developed quite a reputation, and that is in recaps and buyouts of behavioral health organizations, including autism centers and the like. I would really like to hear, and I know our audience would appreciate your perspective on the next 12 months or so in this space and maybe focusing on what some of the drivers of this activity are. Thank you, Roger. Behavioral health covers a range of issues, but today I'm going to address the fundamentals of the autism industry and what we can expect going forward. But first, a little bit of history on the term autism. Autism was initially used to describe schizophrenic patients in the early 1900s. And later in 1940, a German scientist named Hans Asperger reported cases of milder forms of autism, which are now known as Asperger's syndrome. Uh, and it's mostly boys that were highly intelligent but had trouble with social interactions. The movie Rain Man from the 80s was important for raising public awareness for the disorder. And today, the DSM-5 folds all of the subcategories into conditions under one umbrella of a diagnosis called Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. So as, uh, as we're talking about today, autism has attracted a significant amount of attention from private equity investors who are seeking to leverage some very compelling dynamics in the industry, such as the significant fragmentation, uh, which is really just a, a lot of very small mom and pops and pure plays with a few diversified players out there as well. Uh, no one really has a competitive advantage or a, a dominant position within the market. Investors are also trying to address the supply-demand imbalance, uh, which is created by the increase in incidence of the number of children that have been diagnosed. So to put that into perspective, back in 2000, one in every 150 children were diagnosed with autism. And astonishingly today, that number is one in every 40. 
Another aspect is the attractive reimbursement environment, uh, coupled with strong patient advocacy and growing funding sources. Greater utilization due to awareness and earlier diagnosis. Last but not least, highly profitable unit economics. So Roger, the characteristics that make for an attractive investment are no surprise. Number one, an experienced and talented executive team. Uh, that is very, very important as it is with, with all companies. High quality clinical programs uh, that have tailored treatment plans to meet individual needs, both for the home and the center-based settings. Next would be geographic diversity and a replicatable market entry strategy and de novo model. Also demonstrated ability to integrate and add on acquisitions. A payer focused strategy on in-network contracting, which provides rate stability. And unit economics in the top quartile of the industry uh, are also what investors seek. And lastly, I would say metric-driven clinical outcomes. Uh, that's very important for obvious reasons, but that folds back into the payer discussion. So where does the industry go from here? Looking back, there have been roughly, uh, I was able to count about 150 transactions over the last 20 years in the autism sector. The vast majority of those were private equity sponsored transactions. Going forward, I would expect the consolidation to continue roughly at or near the same pace due to the fundamentals I mentioned previously. Given the number of platforms in existence today, the external factors such as the availability and cost of debt and other non-economic factors, I expect we will see some pressure on valuation over the next 12 months. Back to you, Roger. Dan, thank you very much. And so I take it, Dan, that you don't see, you guys at Coker and you in particular, don't see any slowdown in this growth over the next 12 months? Across the behavioral health spectrum, uh, we don't see a slowdown, but within certain pockets, there's definitely a slowdown. So if you're an out-of-network substance abuse provider, you've had a, a very difficult time collecting, and those, those companies are seeing a tremendous amount of pressure, and, and some are actually not able to collect on the services that they're providing. So we, we've seen a number of companies that are, are failing because of that. That's pretty fascinating. And that really leads me to my next round of questions for you guys. And that is on this issue of valuations and valuation growth. And yet, Dan, uh, what you're seeing in autism, John, I take it, you've seen actually a pullback. You mentioned earlier that there's a lot of, uh, there's more investor discipline being applied to the valuation of deals. I've got two questions. The first question is, John, in the pullback that you're seeing when we were seeing, you know, some of these platform companies, uh, physician platform companies going at 13 and 14 times trailing 12 months earnings or are, you know, on a pro forma basis, potentially even more because of all the credit that they were giving on a pro forma basis. What is causing the pullback? in valuation and causing the investor discipline? Is it a supply and demand thing? Or is it that they've seen some of these platforms stumble because there was too much credit giving and the prices were too high so that it was impacting returns? What do you think it is that's causing that, that pullback that you're seeing? The pullback is really more on the earnings credit side than it is on the multiple. We are seeing multiples hold in terms of 
you know, the assigned relative pricing statistic, uh, when you really dig into the numbers and how, how the uh, transaction is being valued. Uh, the big change is, is on the earnings credit side. We were getting credit and really all bankers were getting and sellers were getting credit for uh, pretty aggressive forward looking revenue and earnings adjustments into a, a seller uh, performance. So, you know, looking forward and annualizing a, a new provider two years forward and seeing relative to reported earnings as much as 50%, 100% increases in, in the pro forma EBITDA that was then being valued at, at a multiple. And so you'd get, you know, some pretty significant uh, actual trailing multiples in some of these transactions. And the, the issue with that is uh, some groups have worked out because in fact they were growing that fast and they just grew through the, you know, grew through and grew into the, the multiple. Uh, others, if it doesn't show up, if the earnings and, and revenues don't show up and, and the transaction is done on a, uh, with, with bank debt and significant leverages, you know, that practice gets upside down. And, uh, you know, equity investors have to put more money in. For the most part, particularly in the, at the front end of this consolidation wave, these, these companies have, have worked out just because it's been early enough and there's been nice growth. You know, you asked the question, have there been some, you know, some challenges? Yes, for sure. For the most part, these groups have, have done very well. Uh, what you would expect at the front end of a consolidation wave uh, within these highly fragmented uh, sectors. You know, there have been uh, a couple of, of groups that have, have had some challenges and uh, a perfect example of that is uh, what's going on with one of the larger consolidators, uh, now U.S. Dermatology Partners, which is based in Dallas, uh, was formed uh, initially through the merger of, of two good-sized practices, one in North Texas and one in Kansas City. Uh, very good practices with excellent clinicians and, and a great reputation. Uh, was taken through a, an auction and transitioned from the initial private equity fund to its current owner. And then really just kept running and doing successfully closing acquisitions and have really grown a, a pretty significant uh, practice. But along the way, they haven't been uh, as disciplined in putting in common informatics across all the practices and, and getting their, uh, their data and systems to a single platform, which is really important when you're mounting up against multiple site, multiple state. They certainly overpaid uh, in our view on the, on the entry there. That's a situation where a, a tremendous amount of pro forma credit was given and paid for and leveraged against. And, you know, if you talk to some of the clinicians, frankly, U.S. Durham has fallen a bit short on developing a consistent physician-friendly environment. And that's really important to get right when you're talking about a professional services business, uh, businesses like this, in that you've got to have uh, physicians all pulling in the same direction and feeling like the, the strategy makes their life better. And today they have some dissatisfaction among a number of their key physicians. So that's going to they need to figure out a way to, to solve that. And I'm, I'm sure they will, you know, in the physician practice universe, at least the keys to success 
our basic blocking and tackling. First, you, you have to partner with doctors who have a common culture and practice philosophy and are committed to practicing and growing the business. You absolutely have to implement a common set of informatics uh, for all the practices and EMR and practice management software and find a way to manage the practice in a way that creates value for the physician partner while continuing to support delivering high quality care to patients and a, and a value proposition to the payer. So you know, where you see these things going wrong, it's, it's when they don't tend to their knitting like that. And, and uh, you know, certainly the pressure of, of overpaying up front can lead to some distress in the platform. Interesting stuff. Dan, in the behavioral health space, when you've, you mentioned earlier substance use uh, disorder clinics that are out of network, uh, uh, you know, a lot of pullback and slow down there. They're not getting paid. When you see deals stutter and sputter, why is it? Is it, is it again that they've overpaid? Do they hit payer headwinds? Is it legislative? So when these deals go bad or they stumble, what do you guys look at as the reason for that? Roger, there's a lot of perceptible headwinds that have led to some of the challenges you're alluding to. I would characterize those as follows. The decline in out-of-network rate uh, admissions is one, that followed by lower reimbursement rates by the insurance providers, which also leads to a decline in length of stay by the patients and aggressive utilization by the payers. So the payers are not only trying to reduce the length of stay, but also those that need treatment sometimes are not able to get the treatment that they need. Other things that impact are the, what you would expect and what John had suggested on physician services as well, which are high valuations and pro forma earnings that don't work out. Gentlemen, thank you for your time and your expertise today. For those of you listening out there, you got some real inside baseball on what's gonna go on in healthcare private equity investing over the next 12 months. Thanks to everybody for their time today and thanks to you out there listening to this podcast. If you have any questions, you can always find us at foley.com. And with that, Judy, I'm gonna turn it back to you. Thank you, Roger. And thank you to John Riddle, Managing Director of Brown, Gibbons, Lang, and Dan Davidson, Managing Director, Coker Capital, for a great show. We appreciate you taking the time to join us today. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Healthcare Law Today podcast, your connection to timely legal updates in the healthcare industry. Healthcare Law Today is a monthly program, and we encourage you to subscribe to this podcast or to Foley's Healthcare Law Today blog at healthcarelawtoday.com. If you like this show, don't forget to subscribe and please rate us five stars. Until next time on the Healthcare Law Today podcast, I'm Judy Waltz at Foley & Lardner. Thank you for joining us.